Alright, Boketov. That means good morning in Hebrew. Shalom, Elohim, peace be to you, as Pastor Belvi always says. As you know, I uh, recently came back from this uh, trip to Israel, so I thought it would be apt for me to just greet all of you in Hebrew. Uh, and also preach on a passage that we had the opportunity to visit in person, uh, the place called Caesarea Philippi, and the passage will be based on that. Uh, apologies to those of you who signed up for the trip earlier, based on the earlier dates, but not able to join us for the later trip because of the change of dates. It's a long story, so I don't want to uh, bore you the details, but just to say sorry for that. So since I cannot bring you on the trip to Israel, I thought I'd bring back a little bit of Israel uh, to some uh, those of you who missed the trip and to all of us here. <clears throat> but before that, let's uh, read the passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, but, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord! This shall never happen to you, he said. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the Word of God. Now, before we pray, you may be wondering, what does this passage have to do with Advent, the coming of Christ, Christmas season? Well, verse 27, uh, for the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. So Advent is not just remembering that Christ came 2,000 years ago in His incarnation, but also to remind us, to challenge us that we should live a holy life as we prepare for His second coming. Right. So that's the link. And uh, let's pray as we go, uh, we commit this time to the Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and reveal your Son, Father, your Son to us. Just as you revealed your Son to Peter, we ask that, Lord, you reveal the glory of your Son in our midst today. Father, we also ask that your Holy Spirit help us, prepare us to be a holy people, to be ready for His return. So we commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the passage mentioned this place called Caesarea Philippi. So here's a photo of me taking at that place. Ta-da! Next. Okay, so you see that Caesarea Philippi and you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world? It's just a piece of rock behind me. Yeah, generally that's true. If you go to the site, you will see more uh, details. 
Now, what's most significant about Caesarea Philippi is that it used to be a place filled with pagan worship. Next slide. So behind the rocks, actually, this was the historical place. This is the artist's impression, what the place would probably have looked like during Jesus' time. So there were many temples at the time dedicated, of course, to the various gods, various people even. There was the temple of Augustus to Caesar. Then there was the grotto dedicated to this half-goat, half-man called Pan. And so because it's goat man, they, they, they named it the god Pan. Later on, uh, during the uh, translation, lost in translation, it became Banias because they didn't have the letter P in the language, so it became Banias, but actually it's dedicated to this Greek god Pan. And because of this goat man, god, right, so they had this tomb temple dedicated to goats as well. There was a lot of goats uh, sacrificed there. A lot of goat's blood uh, spilled in that place. There was the temple of Zeus, the courts of Nemesis, all these are the Greek gods and goddesses. So this place basically was full of pagan worship. There are so many different temples there dedicated to different gods and deities. If there's one place which epitomizes the peak of pagan worship, Caesarea Philippi was that place. And yet, it was right in that place where all these spiritual forces reigned. Jesus asked a question that challenged the authorities in that place, that challenged Satan. He asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And more importantly, who do you say I am? Amazingly, against all the dark forces in that place, Peter answers correctly. He answers and declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So here's the first point. You know, some of us have this misconception that we cannot function in a spiritually oppressive environment. However, as this passage demonstrates to us, that understanding is simply not true. We can operate under God's revelation even in a highly oppressive spiritual environment. Got it? Some of us go to places where we say, oh, there are some spiritual forces at work, I better run, better run. Or we get freaked out and we think that God cannot speak to us in those dark places. I hope you realize from today's passage that that sort of thinking is wrong. Caesarea Philippi was full of darkness, spiritual darkness in every way. Look at the amount of pagan worship. Yet, Christ revealed himself, God rather revealed himself to Peter as the Christ. So the point here is that light always dispels darkness, not the other way around. Why should we be afraid of darkness when we have the light of Christ in us? So Christ is the light of the world. He came into the world and now He lives in us. And so we should be the one dispelling darkness, not the other way around. We shouldn't be afraid of the darkness. If you don't believe me, look at what the passage says. Jesus says to Peter, You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of Hades cannot overcome the church. The gates of Hades cannot overcome the church. Now what are gates used for? Are they used for offense or defense? When do you put up a gate? Obviously for defense, right? I mean, who attacks with a gate? Ah, Chiyong with the gate. Nobody attacks with the gate. But gates are for defense. And so, when the church advances, the gates of Hades cannot prevail and overcome the church. Right? Light always dispels darkness. Secondly, in biblical times, gates are designated places where elders will meet. You know, key decisions are made because these are the authority figures. And so, what Peter heard from Jesus is essentially this. The highest authorities at the gates of Hades, i.e. Satan himself in all his dominion, all of them cannot overcome the church. The key decision has already, pardon the pun here, the key decision has already been declared. 
that we as the church hold, to, hold on to the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of Hades cannot overcome us. So church is supposed to advance and Hades cannot overcome us. So when Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do you say I am? It's not that Jesus didn't know himself. He doesn't know his own identity. Of course, he knows who he is, the Son of God. He knows full well his own identity. But Jesus asked the question because he needed his disciples to realize who this man was. Who is the man talking to them? That Jesus has all authority. Remember Caesarea Philippi? That Jesus has all authority even in a place filled with pagan worship. This is the Son of the Living God, the Messiah, the one who has all authority, even at the place so called at the stronghold of Satan. So, this event season, as we await the return of the King, my question to you is similar Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you realize that Jesus has all authority? How big essentially is your God? Is he only confined to this little space in church or at Amokyo Hub? How big is our God? Is he truly Lord of the universe? Consequently, do you realize that you have, as believers, all authority given to you, given to us, all authority over the kingdom of darkness? Do you realize that? Personally, on a, on a personal note, my question to you, is Jesus only saviour of your life or is he also Lord of your life? If he's only saviour but you are still the Lord of your life, is that correct? Is that the way it's supposed to be? If he is truly the son of the living God, shouldn't he be the Lord of our lives? And if he is Lord of our lives, do we consult him regularly just as a servant will consult their master and their Lord regularly? So who is Jesus to you? Is he only your saviour or is he also your Lord? The second point this passage reminds us or teaches us is that the clearer we know God's identity, the clearer God's identity becomes to us, the clearer our God-given identity becomes. The clearer God's identity uh, is to us, becomes to us, the clearer our God-given identity becomes. The more we know who God is, the more confident we become in the person that God has made us. When Simon correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus in turn gives Simon a new name, Peter, coming from Petros, Petra later on, the, the place we didn't go in Israel, the meaning the rock, the rock. When Simon declared Peter, uh, Jesus to be the son of the living God, Jesus declared Peter to be the rock and the church will be built on top of the rock where the gates of Hades cannot overcome the church. So you see, our identity and our purpose are tied to the revelation of who God is, his identity and his purpose. The clearer we are of who God is, the clearer we become of our own identity and our own callings. My trip was to, to Israel was fascinating in many ways, but allow me just to share one particular incident with you. When we arrived at the Sea of Galilee, we visited this place called Mensa Christi. Here's a photo of me uh, taken over there in the chapel. Mensa Christi basically means the table of Christ, commemorates uh, the resurrection, uh, the resurrected Jesus preparing bread and fish over fire for his disciples. And then also remembers Jesus' reinstatement of Peter as his chief apostle. Basically, John chapter 21. Right? So John chapter 21 is basically captured in this site. Uh, this whole entire site revolves around Simon Peter, how he uh, had the, the breakfast with Jesus, and then later on Jesus asked him three questions. 
after I sat in the chapel for a while, I decided to take a stroll along the seas, uh, the seaside, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. As I walked along, suddenly I heard in my spirit, not an audible voice, but in my spirit, a very quiet voice, very quick, fleeting voice. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build the church. My first reaction was, what? Number one, I'm Anthony. Why do you call me Peter? What? Secondly, I mean, I'm a, to some extent a biblical scholar. And then I do my exegesis. And I was like, I cannot be the God. How can it be? This passage, obviously, is not talking about individuals, right? It's about the church and stuff like that. So that's what my thinking was. So I heard in my spirit this, but my mind, logical mind kicked in and said, ah, are you sure, are you sure? So I wasn't very sure, so I left it. As I left the beach and I started walking back towards tour bus, I happened to turn around and there was uh, Rakesh who was just behind me, walking behind me, but I didn't know he was behind me. Unknown to me, just before I turned around, God had given him a word. And when I turned around, he came up to me and he said, God told me that you are the feeder of God's sheep that you will feed God's sheep. To me, that's really an affirmation and confirmation. If you read John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Each time Peter will reply, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And what did Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so with that confirmation, I will be stepping into my new role come January 2019. I'm very heartened and my calling is reaffirmed by God there at the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So in this case for myself, the more I know who God is, the resurrected Christ, the one who calls me, the clearer I become of my own identity. Right? So it's the same with Peter. When he was given the revelation of who Jesus is, Jesus gave him a new identity. Various ones of you over the years have told me that my preaching is sincere and bold and even fearless at times. And perhaps some of you are wondering to yourself, how is that possible? Why is this man able to speak like that? Well, from my point of view, I try my best to live for the approval only of one. And that is God alone. Whatever he tells me to do, I try my best to obey him. So I live not for the approval of people, which many of us are caught in a trap in, and it's difficult to say no, but I think I, live, I try my best to live for the approval of one, according to whatever the scripture tells me, I will obey. And so that's how I form my identity. I know who my God is. I know God loves me, He's pleased with me, and I'm called to serve Him. My service is not trying to earn His approval in the sense of my performance saving me, no. But I just simply live as a son, as a servant of God. And so if that's the secret, I hope we can all catch this secret that all of us will live likewise, that we live only for the approval of one. No matter where God places us, no matter how spiritually oppressive the environment is, your work environment is, how toxic it is, we all can make a choice to live for the approval of one. It's not easy, I know. It's easy to say here, but I tell you, it's not easy to submitting to various authorities over me, but I choose to live for the authority of only one. And I pray all of us will discover how liberating it is to serve God alone. So that's the second point. Now, returning to this passage on Caesarea Philippi, geographically, just to bring Israel back to you, Caesarea Philippi is located at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's there on the picture. You, that part that is circled is Caesarea Philippi. In the background, in the far background, is the peak of Mount Hermon, which is basically covered with snow in winter. In the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 17, which I didn't read it to us, but if you read that chapter, you will see how the disciples were brought up to a high point where Jesus was transfigured. So some people think that because Caesarea Philippi is so near at the foot of Mount Hermon, 
Probably Mount Hermon is one of the possible places where Jesus was transfigured. And it's the highest mountain range with uh, 2,800 meters in height, Mount Hermon. Now from that high point, if this is true, where Jesus was transfigured, if you look at the geography, it's fascinating. Jesus then, at the high point of his transfiguration, begins his descent back to Galilee and then to Jerusalem. Of course, there's a valley. Yeah? Uh, Galilee is actually the valley, and then you go up a little bit towards the Mount of uh, uh, Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. But essentially, it's as if the geography of the land parallels the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' high point at the Mount of, of Transfiguration, uh, Mount Hermon, and then he descends from then on to his lowest point, just as he taught his disciples. The Son of Man must begin to be crucified. He will be crucified. He will suffer at the hands of the teachers of the law. I just find it very fascinating that the geography of the land, that what Jesus did, matches uh, really what he's doing in his disciples. Coming back to this Matthew chapter 16 passage, despite Peter having a wonderful revelation of who Jesus was, Unfortunately, the passage doesn't end there, or fortunately, I think it's important that we see the second half of the passage. From verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples, from that time on, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he is not the Messiah that people expected. He explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then be killed. Despite having this wonderful revelation that Peter is the Messiah, uh, sorry, that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter fell into the hands of Satan. Let me say that again in case you didn't, you were falling asleep. Obviously, you're not very sure you're listening or not. Despite the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter fell into the hands of Satan. In the very next scene, it didn't take very long. And he questioned the way of the Messiah. Peter failed to understand that his definition of the Messiah is not God's definition of Messiah. In fact, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. I mean, this is the disciple scolding the teacher, number one. Secondly, he had just won this wonderful revelation that he is the son of the living God. And yet he was scolding the son of the living God. What uh, audacity, right? And so, uh, they, Peter had a different understanding of who the Messiah was or to be. In fact, the Jews today, I asked my tour guide, my Jewish tour guide on the trip, well, why don't you believe you know, in Jesus the Messiah? Uh, I, of course, I asked the question differently. What kind of Messiah are you expecting? He said he's looking forward to a political figure, someone who can bring peace to the entire region, not just to Jerusalem, but to the entire Middle East, because he believed that the prophecies are true. If the prophecies are true, then there must be everlasting peace. And Jesus came, but there was no everlasting peace. So for the Jews, they believe that because Jesus didn't bring everlasting peace, he's not the Messiah. So as in those days, like today, they continue to have this understanding that the Messiah must be a political figure, one who will bring peace to the entire region. Peter in those days expected Jesus to defeat all the Roman forces, chase out all these people, foreigners conquering them, that the chief priests or all these corrupted religious leaders will be removed. That was his understanding of the Messiah. And so when Peter heard that Jesus had to suffer and be crucified, Straight away, he said, no, Lord, how can this be? This shall never happen to you. But he didn't have the right understanding. He didn't understand that God's ways are different. Just as the Jews today fail to see that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The peace that God gives to us is a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that resides in us. 
it is a peace that enables us to go through storms, regardless of the circumstances in life, whether there is war or peace externally, there is always an abiding peace in our heart. So Jesus gives us this peace that the world cannot give. Cannot give. Now, just as Peter failed, uh, Peter, uh, Peter failed Jesus in our passage today, I realized I failed the tour group too. Even though God had affirmed me at the Sea of Galilee, somewhere along the trip, sometime along the trip, I won't go into the details, but essentially, I had left the sheep defenseless. I had failed as their shepherd. And there and there, I realized that just as Peter failed to grasp Jesus' mission as Messiah, I have failed in my role to probably care and feed for God's sheep. So here's the truth that I realized that day, that there is really always more room for us to grow into the person and to the calling that God has given to us. No matter how much we have grown as disciples, there is always more room to grow further as his disciples. Just as Peter, so-called the rock, needed to understand that the Messiah has to be crucified, so too, even though God has affirmed my role to be Peter the rock, I need to understand that there are certain responsibilities I need to fulfill as God's shepherd. If I am truly to be a rock, as God proclaims me to be, I need to be more dependable in my role as a shepherd. So pray me that this will come to pass. I will grow in, the, in my faithfulness and dependence on God and dependable as a shepherd. But we return now to the question I first asked all of us. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asked us, who do you say I am? In return, we should ask Jesus, Lord, who do you say I am? Who does Jesus call us to be? Are your expectations of Jesus biblical? Are your expectations as a Christian biblical? It works both ways, right? God's identity, our identity, they are tied together. Who do we say Jesus is and who does Jesus say we are? We are the church. That's the good part, right? But do we also hear that the message from the Bible that we need to endure suffering from, for Christ? Many of us expect God to protect us from all suffering. Now, is that a biblical expectation? Is that a right, accurate understanding? Didn't Jesus say in our passage today that all who follow Him must take up their crosses daily? <laughs> Being crucified, you think that's enjoyable? No, definitely not. Did the Apostle Paul tell us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering? The book of Philippians, rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Apostle Peter himself told us to endure suffering for Christ. Essentially, the entire Bible tells us that before Jesus returns again, his people will have to suffer for his kingdom. And yet so many of us wrongly expect to be raptured, taken away and escape suffering. Again, are our expectations of Jesus and ourselves biblical, accurate? Christmas is supposed to be a happy season where we look forward to the glorious return of Jesus. That's what Advent is about. But how many of us prepare ourselves adequately for His return? Do we realize that Jesus is waiting for a glorious bride, bride that is fully radiant, pure and spotless? Will Jesus return to a bride that is still caught in sin? Friends, you know, part of me believes that God is delaying the return of His Son because His bride is not ready for His return. Ouch. But really, I think that's the reason why, you know, Jesus says, I do not know the day. Only the Father knows the day I will return. And that's because God is gracious and merciful to His people. You, our guys, are not ready. 
How can you guys, when you guys are ready, my son will return for his glorious bride. So the reason why the father, I think, is delaying the son's return is because the church is not ready. As a confirmation of this message, I was reading the book of Jude as part of my devotions, which is part of the Sermon Journal Bible reading plan we give out every year. And the fifth verse in the book of Jude says this, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Do you hear that? The Lord at one time delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. In other words, we take that parallel to our Christian life. We cannot take our salvation for granted, our deliverance for granted. We say, oh, I said the sinner's prayer, I'm saved. No. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt, but yet they were destroyed because of their unbelief. And as Christians, if we come into the faith and do not grow as the disciples, do not grow in holiness, and we continue in our stubbornness and our sin, we will too, likewise, be destroyed. This is a New Testament letter. The book of Jude is not written in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament letter. If we are not ready, our faith and our sin, our faith weakens, continues to weaken, and continue to live in sin, then we stand in danger of losing our salvation. And how can God come back for a glorious bride if we are living in sin? So if we as the church want to hasten the return of Jesus, of Christ, we must prepare ourselves just as the bride will adorn herself, prepare herself, beautify herself before her wedding. How do we do that? We must remove all our wrong understandings of God and ourselves as His disciples. We must allow the Word of God to cleanse us daily. The Word of God is the cleansing agent. We must allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and repent and live a new life. We must get rid of the fear of sin and live a life of holiness as His disciples, as His holy bride. Today, in summary, Jesus asks us three questions. Number one, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Is He only a convenient God, your insurance ticket to heaven? Or truly Lord of your life, Lord of this entire world? Secondly, Jesus reminds us of our identity as the church and the gates of Hades will not overcome our advancement. Do we truly believe who God says we are? Or are we still living in fear and shame? We have a glorious identity as the church. And number three, if we have a glorious identity as church, let's live up to that name. The Holy Spirit also asks us today, are you ready for His return? Will you live a pure and holy life? a spotless bride fit for the bridegroom? Will we live as the bride that God intended for us to be? So three questions for our reflections. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say you are? Who does Jesus say that you are? The church. Some of you have gone through Steps to Freedom as part of a baptism membership class. We give you a whole new list, a list to meditate your identity in Christ. Wonderful list. The beautiful person that God has made us to be free in Christ. Do we believe that new identity? And finally, do we get ourselves ready as His people for His return? Not to earn our salvation, you know, or prove ourselves, no. But to mature and prepare ourselves for His return. As parents, we love our children unconditionally, but yet we expect them to mature, to grow, right? In the same way, God loves us unconditionally. We don't have to earn our approval, our salvation, because God has done everything in Christ. But we must be ready for His return. That is our role to be a holy bride ready for the return 
of our bridegroom. Let us pray. O Spirit of the living God, we ask that you fall afresh on your people. Wake us from our slumber. Help us, you know, if we have been so myopic, just thinking about Christmas as a season just for giving gifts. That's true, but it's far more than that. Help us to live a holy life, that our entire lives may be a gift to you. Help us to prepare ourselves to be a holy people. We know we can't do this on our own, definitely. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So enable us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us through your word. Empower us once again to be the pure and spotless bride, without blemish, ready for the return of our bridegroom. We give you thanks once again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.